My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories and narratives, and all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week. Ways you can support our ministry is first, follow our Instagram page then go ahead and like that archaic Facebook page. And then you can listen to this broadcast and make comments underneath if you would like, or any social media channel that you listen to. You can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org under the give tab. It's off to the right on our website. And so you can click on that and go to our give site. You are joining us live on Thursday night at 8.30 p.m. for this podcast. And this is going to be replayed on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. So if you uh, miss Thursday, just know that it will be replayed exactly the way it is tonight on Sunday. So each Thursday, we come together live to give a better understanding of topics that we're discussing and materials that we're covering. And so call this a deeper dive with my guests uh, joining me, Jake Flug and Sherea Bodner two of my expert theologians today to discuss Exodus 15.22 through 19.25. So basically Exodus 15 through 19. And good evening, Sharia and Jake. How are you? Hello. Good evening. Oh, are we still guests? This is like week 10 for us, right? Exactly. Okay. So you're not guests anymore. I need to change my intro. I will co-host. Yeah. Co-host. <laughs> there we go. All right. So some important first announcements. We want you to join us. If you're joining us live on Thursday night, we want you to join us in this way. Comment underneath the social media channel that you're listening to, and we will do our best in a timely way to answer your questions. If you want to comment, you can just know that not all comments are appropriate and won't be read out loud, but questions we will try to answer the very best. So form it in a question and then we'll try to answer that the very best that we, that we can. Uh, is there any other, any other uh, homework or not homework, but house, house cleaning stuff that we need to do? I think that's it right now. Thank you. Okay. All right. So we are going to be in Exodus 15 through 19, but Jake is going to read for us Exodus 16. And so go ahead. And if you want to pull that up on the screen, we can just jump right in and do this. Great. Exodus 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the Sin Desert, which is located between Elam and Sinai. They set out on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The whole Israelite community complained against Moses and Aaron in the desert. The Israelites said to them, oh, how we wish the Lord had just put us to death while we were still in the land of Egypt. There, would, there we could sit by the pots of cooking meat and eat our fill of bread. Instead, he brought us out into the desert to starve this whole assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to make bread rain down from the sky for you. The people will go out each day and gather just enough for that day. In this way, I'll test them to see whether or not they follow my instruction. On the sixth day, when they measure out what they have collected, it will be twice as much as they collect on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, this evening, you will know the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the Lord's gracious presence because your complaints against the Lord have been heard. Who are we? Why blame us? When Moses continued, the Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and in your fill of bread in the morning because the Lord heard the complaints you made against him. Who are we? Your complaints aren't against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole Israelite community, come near to the Lord because he's heard your complaints. As Aaron spoke to the whole Israelite community, they turned to look toward the desert. And just then, the glorious presence of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Then uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, 
I have heard the complaints to the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight, you will eat meat. In the morning, you will have your fill of bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, a flock of quail flew down and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the desert surface were thin flakes, as thin as frost in the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? They didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, this is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Collect as much of it as each of you can eat, one omer per person. You may collect the number of the number of people in your you may collect for the number of people in your household. The Israelites did as Moses said, some collecting more, some less. But when they measured it out by the omer, the ones who had collected more had nothing left over. The ones who had collected less had no shortage. Everyone collected just as much as they could eat. Moses said to them, "Don't keep any of it until morning." But they didn't listen to Moses. Some kept part of it until morning, but it became infested with worms and stink. Moses got angry with them. Every morning they gathered it, as much as a person could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, the people collected twice as much food as usual, two omers per person. All the chiefs of the community came to Moses and came and told Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of rest, the holy Sabbath, the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, but you can set aside and keep all the leftovers till next morning. So they set the leftovers aside until morning as Moses had commanded. They didn't stink or become infested with worms. The next day, Moses said, eat it today because today is a Sabbath to the, to the Lord. Today, you won't, find it, you, you won't find it out in the field. Six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be nothing to gather. On the seventh day, some people went out to gather bread, but they found nothing. The Lord said to, said to Moses, how long will you refuse to obey my commandments and instructions? Look, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you enough food for two days. Each of you should stay where you are and not leave your place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The Israelite people called it manna. It was like a coriander seed, white and tasted like honey wafers. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept safe for the future generations so that they can see the food that I used to feed you in the desert when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put one full omer of manna in it, then set it in the Lord's presence, where it should be kept safe for future generations. Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses, and he put it in front of the covenant document for safekeeping. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a livable land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan and Omer is one-tenth of an ephah. All right. Well, before we get into the subject matter of cornflakes, we just want to make a, a, a pre-announcement that the end of this talk on Exodus 15 through 19, we are going to do an overtime. We're doing an overtime series, actually, of just random topics usually relate to the very thing that we're talking about. But tonight, I think in celebration of International Women's uh, Day and also Women's History Month, that we are going to talk about female equality in the church and the significance of female uh, women in scripture. And so we're going to cover that topic in overtime. And so for a few minutes, more like 45 or 50 minutes, we're going to talk about Exodus 15 through 19, and then we're going to jump into the topic of the significance of women in scripture and female equality in the church. But first, let's talk about these cornflakes. So I think that every time I hear the story of manna, that's what I think about, cornflakes on the desert floor. And I don't I know what it is. Probably desired outcome. 
<laughs> so there is a, a big metaphor here of manna, and that brings up the metaphor of food in scripture in general. So let's talk about that, that for a few minutes. You guys have any thoughts about food as a metaphor in scripture and what foods are metaphor in scripture? Did you do some thinking about that the last couple of days? A little bit. Okay, go for it. Well, I mean, I, I think of the idea of, of nourishment. I, I think that's the most obvious. Um, right. Um, I think it's important to note that, that God does care, um, hmm. that our caloric needs are met. Um, yeah. But then also, um, I think about when um, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Um, the way Jesus connects himself to, to food, to nourishment, to that daily need. Yeah. Jake, you have any thoughts on initially when we talk the metaphor of food, the importance of food in scripture? I think we can get into each of the like food items to talk through the metaphors Sure. Uh, with each one. And I think there's a laundry list of, of food in, in scripture, especially important ones. Um, I, I, I liken manna to, to in First Kings, where the widow's jar, she's feeding it's Elisha. I get the two confused often, I'm sorry. And uh, she keeps feeding him, keeps feeding him, and, and never runs empty. And so food is the direct metaphor all food in general to god's provision in our lives that we will have enough as long as we're satiated with enough and i think we can get into the grumbling later on a little bit but as long as we have enough we'll be satiated Do you think that all food in scripture has this great theological concept that hovers over it, that we're supposed to see greater existential realities because of bread? Yes. <laughs> Carbohydrates are, are tasty. Well, sometimes I think about like metaphors in scripture and, and then I think, well, maybe the miracle of Cana, right? Mm -hmm. And the wine. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the, the wine is like, maybe, maybe you just want to pull out some good wine. Oh, the wedding feast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could talk about that, the fruit of the vine and, you know, you talk about the first miracle of Christ being a greater spiritual reality, or maybe he just wanted to get people drunk and have a good time. I mean, is that, is that possible? Course. We don't always have to spiritualize the food. Sure. We don't always have to spiritualize the food. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, the action of turning water to wine is rather spiritual, but. Well, sure. It's a miracle, but maybe it's just the purpose of it was just to get everybody drunk and have a good time. I, I, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility. <laughs> you can't do miracles. Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about the first one. We got manna. So what is the spiritual reality of manna? These cornflakes on the desert floor. Frost. Mm-hmm. Tastes like honey. I think it has to go with God's provision that mm -hmm. God heard and God responded. A constant theme of, of Exodus is yeah. God heard and God responded. God heard, God responded. And so... And the Israelites sometimes take advantage of that. So like they collected too much and it turned mm -hmm. to, to rot and worms. Yeah. But God still the next day still provided again. Mm -hmm. I think more for me, the idea of manna is showing that God is enough. Not that he's giving me enough. But for me, when I look at the metaphor of manna, 
And so, yeah, God is, but he's, he's literally throwing whatever this stuff is on the, on the ground, go pick up, you know, these pieces of bread or this flaky substance, you know, honey, on wafers. The ground. honey wafers. Um, but to me, that's a lesson that the Israelite people in their grumbling, they wanted more. They wanted something different. It would have been better if you would have sent us back to slavery so that we had bread and water there at an abundance or as given. But, uh, but you know, so manna couldn't imagine, have tasted manna couldn't have tasted that good. I can't it imagine have, uh, slaves having much meat in their pots. Yeah. No, so th- that's one story that doesn't really add up to me. Is they're complaining? Is it rational? Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably didn't have much time to sit by the cooking pots either. No, no. So then it just kind of like expands with this idea of manna in the jar for future generations. Like now we're going to put it in. What was that called? What that the Omer jar? The yeah. Measurement? The yeah. The measurement. That's yeah, a that lot was... of food. It's enough for one person for a day. That is a lot. That's a lot of manna. So, so I look at manna specifically as just a metaphor for me. Yes, God gives me provision, but what I receive is enough. And God is enough. I don't know, just a thought. How about uh how about some milk and honey? That's not on our list, but you know, you can't talk about manna without some milk and honey. It's like cookies and milk, Oreos and milk, dip the manna in the mm-hmm. milk. So, so what is, what is this metaphor of milk and honey? The abundance of the promised land. Yeah. It is, it is the, the top foods. Yeah. Sweet, nourishing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to yeah. have healthy land for healthy cows. Right. That can produce milk. Yep. The, um, and Canaan always has the, has the subtext of the land of milk and honey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they were, they were headed that direction. It, it probably is important to note that that back with uh, Jacob, Canaan was also the land of milk and honey, but he had to leave Canaan for Egypt because of a severe drought that ended mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So John the Baptist ate locusts, bugs, and honey, locusts mm-hmm. and honey. And people think that John the Baptist was a just a poor person that lived outside the walls. But the problem with that thinking is if you lived outside the walls, you were unprotected. So you literally had a community of people that knew how to protect themselves. Um, whether that be their own set of walls or how they acted out outside the walls. So, so John the Baptist is a figure of, to me, decadence because locust is a seasonal animal that has to be stored and honey is a decadent collected mm-hmm. item. You had to work for it. So, so the idea of John the Baptist wearing fur, nobody wore fur, they wore cloth. So like this idea of an animal skin and fur, we think of literally like somebody with this long beard and like maybe greasy and this weird, weird coat and like living off of bugs and, and scraping off the bottom of the pot of honey or something. That's not the way that John the Baptist is, nor is meant to be depicted. He's a decadent He's rich. And so this idea of milk and honey to me is the idea of decadence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Surplus. Like more than enough. Complete like maybe surplus. Yeah. More than enough. Yeah. Surplus. Okay. Sure. I take some grains and bread. Do you okay. like bread? Do you like bread? I don't eat bread. Uh, it depends uh, on the bread. Okay. Sourdough. Sure. Okay. Grains and bread. What's up? Um, gosh, I mean, I already talked about the bread of life. Um, 
Yeah, it's unfair. I thought you'd just expand on it and talk more. Yeah. I mean, when I think about bread, I think of like everyday food, you know? Okay. That's like Israel. Isn't there two types of there's two types of bread? Leavened and unleavened. Yeah. Yeah. White rye, Jewish rye, sourdough. (laughs) Yes. True. Pullman. True. Uh, Cinnamon raisin. Don't forget cinnamon raisin toast. Ooh. (laughs) Bring back the childhood there. Okay. So was leavened bread evil and unleavened bread not evil? Uh, I think it depends on the time you're eating it. Uh, so we have the can be, right? Huh? Right. Yeah. Leaven can be a, a metaphor for sin. Um, and then during the festival of unleavened bread, it is a sin to have leaven in your house. In fact, you use the little feather to sweep the last bit of leaven out ceremonially. And leaven we're using for the word yeast. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yes, sometimes, but people still ate bread with yeast. Most of the there's, time. Yeah. There's even one uh, Passover account where they did yeast their bread. They mm. just left it out so it wouldn't rise. Oh, okay. Like the first one. Yeah, so like in that in that weird passage where there's multiple mm-hmm. there's multiple instructions for the Passover, one actually allowed yeast and the other did not. Hmm. Do you think so? Is yeast expensive? I don't, I don't know, know how to make yeast. I don't know. Uh, there was a yeast shortage it, in my, COVID. Yeah, so my guess <laughs> is if I guessed yeast was not cheap it was an additive so it cost something so is there a metaphor there of the unleavened bread being like just enough again like maybe representing a manna could be yeah yeah i'm kind of sold on that myself because i read that earlier (laughs) actually so the unleavened bread (laughs) you've been dropping unleavened bread bread. yeah exactly so yeast that wasn't necessarily expensive. It just was, you know, it added value to the bread. And so you take away the value from the bread and depending on the grain actually used too, like a, a barley or a wheat or a, a rye adds value to the bread. And, and we see that today, like the more, more difficult breads to make, the more they are expensive, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so this idea of taking away the yeast that makes the bread more valuable brings it to a state of like almost like a flake on the ground. Mm. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, it speaks. That's metaphor. It You're good. It just resonates. But honestly, it's like unleavened bread, honestly, is good. I like it. I like to tear it up and and put some hummus, hummus on that. And it's good stuff. A little bit of cucumber. Yeah, it's good stuff. Don't forget the egg. So how about veggies? We got some veggies in scripture. Leeks. When I think about a leek or beans, lentils. What does that speak? Anything to you guys? The only time I can think of leeks is that that's what they wanted in Egypt. Is that right? Mm. That was the food they used to have back in Egypt. Yep. Boom. So leeks would have been, you know, maybe a memory of redemption or mm. God's salvation, right? And the, uh, the Passover meal you have... Um, well, fruits and veggies, you have harosat, which is the apple dish. Mm-hmm. You have the bitter herb, which is Which is really good. Really, really good. Harosat, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, you have, you do the egg, which yeah. uh, people will point as like the Trinity. Um, I'm not sure what the egg is doing there, to be honest with you. Uh, um, it has to do with the 
you're not able to make sacrifices at the temple anymore so it's like in memory of that adam said we're talking through the biblical food pyramid Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) bread is always the base um other fruits and veggies uh it's a pyramid because we're in exodus that's good good job adam uh (laughs) you have um the tree of knowledge of good and evil yeah um pomegranates Mm. i I don't i don't believe that every single food item needs to be meta metaphorized um well it doesn't because the spices and such in scripture have to do with health they have to do with health now but it has to do with health yeah or preservative basically the salt of the earth though Mm -hmm. is a spiritual concept i guess Yeah, how about some fish and fish and fowl? Fish and fowl. Yeah. Yeah. Well, miracles happen with fish. Do they? Yeah. They're magic food. They expand in number. <laughs> Jake, tell us your story of the of the uh, of the feeding of the five thousand. Go for it. It's good. I love it. I like it. I. I... I don't think it's my story. Um, it's not, but the one that you tell. <laughs> uh, which yeah. side? Um, the feeding of 5,000 and the multiplication of fish has more to do with hospitality than mm-hmm. a miraculous event. And so it would have been unsafe and not practical for anyone to travel without food or even be anywhere without food and so when you come to that story in the in in an ancient near eastern time you have to stop because people not having food around them or being able to to like really care for that essential need is not something that would have been done and so the idea is that when the child opened up the basket to give to those who who didn't have enough everyone then returned in response and did the same with what they had so everyone gave what they had not necessarily every that jesus miraculously split fish but gathered enough so that all who wanted all who needed had enough mm. i love that but if you want to believe that jesus multiplied fish and bread that's totally fine go for it because honestly both stories are real and both stories speak a truth and both stories like that's the beauty of scriptures you can see it at different angles and different ideas and not one is more sinful than the other or something like that it's like it's not heresy it speaks a truth and so if it speaks hospitality or if it speaks in the miraculous of jesus of god awesome it actually speaks both to me i mean i've looked at it for years one way and then jake taught me a different way and i'm just like wow that's pretty cool Okay, well, how about Deuteronomy 28? What are we supposed to do with Deuteronomy 28? Because this bothers me big time. We got some law and Deuteronomy 28, 53 through 57, but right around uh, 54, I'll read 54 and following FF. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his own brother or the wife he loves or his surviving children. Let me back up because I need to make sense of the context here. Okay. Because of the suffering of your enemy that will be inflicted on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his own brother or his wife he loves or his surviving children and he will not give to one of them 
this is like a, a bad thing. Yeah. This is like eating children usually is a bad thing. Yeah. But like, this is like, if you, he's not going to give you basically, he's going to be so mean. He's going to be so inflicted upon that. He's not even going to give you the flesh of his children that he is eating. Trey, oh. why is that there? Hunger makes people do bad things. <laughs> bad decisions. <laughs> we need to rethink their, your decision-making I mean, paradigm, is, please. Well, this it is was looking, very um, hangry. Looking back <laughs> oh. at the, the siege of Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, right. Like Deuteronomy. Right. So it's written from a perspective of the blessings and curses. Follow the law. Good things will happen to you. Don't follow the law. Babylonians are going to come and besiege you. Right. You didn't, you um, didn't they didn't basic. follow the law. Yeah. And the Babylonians came and besieged them. Um, you didn't take my bait, but this was I written didn't. after oh. yeah. the destruction of Jerusalem. No. Yeah, yeah, I, I got there and I was coming back around. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> um, sieges are, are pretty awful because um, the yeah. whole point is to cut the city off from any resources. Um, and I don't know, I don't remember how long the siege of Jerusalem took, but it was a long time. Years. Yeah, a long time to not have food. So, so let me. 26 to 722. Yes. No, that's not on Jerusalem's northern kingdom. No, no, 586-ish. So here, let me continue because the story continues. We're talking about the importance of food in scripture, right? The metaphor. Is there a greater metaphor? The most gentle and sensitive woman among you, so sensitive and gentle that she would not venture to touch the ground with the sole of her foot, will begrudge the husband she loves and her own son or daughter, the afterbirth from her womb and the children she bears, for in her dire need she intends to eat them secretly because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege of your cities." Hmm. yep you want to pull a metaphor out of this huh what's the metaphor you want to go for a tray you want me to take a crack um if if you have something to say go for it i'm close <laughs> i mean i get it's more than eating children and um, it's, it is God's yeah. provision has ended. And so God has provided enough. And when there's a final rejection of God, I think that the, the sieges of, of the Northern kingdom, the sieges of, of Judah and Jerusalem show yeah. a final, a final rejection of God in in the wilderness, we see like they, they were kept rejecting the manna. They didn't want to eat it anymore. They were tired of it. 40 years with quail and bread. That's that's a lot of just quail and bread. Have you guys ever eaten quail? I've never eaten quail. Yes. I don't think yes, you, yes, you have, Kevin. When? In Malaysia, you got sick off of quail. Oh, I ate a quail egg. Yes, I did. So that's quail. <laughs> okay, I had a little bit egg. of quail. Yeah. <laughs> Quail egg. Oh, I always thought it was a leg. No, <laughs> egg. That makes that story worse. Yeah. That's why I got a little bit of, you know, queasy. Anyway, go ahead. So I'm here. God's, I'm listening. God's provision is at that point ended to the point where mother will go against daughter, father mm-hmm. against son. And it, Go ahead, Shreya. What's what's your crack at this? I I'm just thinking about uh, cannibalism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what is that I love throwing for? these things at you because you guys are experts, and I know you have thoughts, and you don't know that these things are coming as like little bombs. I, I mean, honestly, it just it brings up um, 
what happened the last time that Ukraine was besieged. Oh, yeah. Of, yeah. As a whole whole yeah. start where they were selling they human, took, yeah. human meat on the yeah. street. Mm -hmm. and that's, I think that was a long time ago. That was... Oh, it was it was the first time that they were taken over. So it was yeah. um, 1930s. Yeah. Which not During long the Bolsh enough. Bolshevik re revolution. Not long enough ago. No. So basically this is the metaphor of disobedience to God. And Jake's right that it's the provision has ended and that suffering will be so great that the hell you live on earth, basically it's a, it's a picture for me when I look at it as, okay, this is hell on earth where you're so hungry that you're actually, you actually will eat people around you. Um, but the idea of eating people has been a horrific idea since the, probably the beginning of time. And so this is just one of those ways, a horrific way, very descriptive way in a horrific way to talk about being left without. So no more cornflakes on the ground. What are we going to do? And we're going to turn to eating our own people. So, and then you throw in children in there and it just becomes even more dark, you know, horrific a dark, and dark. It was a dark metaphor, Kevin. It's Hannibal Lecter style. I mean, it's like just, it's like sitting at the, yeah, it's rough. Okay. All right. So now we're through that. Thank goodness. We got some miraculous food. I didn't know we were going there. So, oh, I know that was a rough one, but I wanted to go there just to, this is just the dark side of scripture. I think, That's don't you think them. it's one of them. Okay. So the miraculous, uh, what is this, the golden dust in Exodus? Uh, can I one more thing? So oh, sorry. sorry. Just the thought, uh, the dark set of scripture. There's a marquee on the way to the Tiger Shop, and it said, "The Bible: colon, God's love letter to you." I'm like, you. dear God, <laughs> you don't know all that's in there. <laughs> Anyways, the golden wow. dust in Exodus. Wow. Drago. Uh, the golden dust. Is that is that the golden calf when they grind up the golden calf and make the people drink it? Um, let me look it up yet. here. We haven't gotten there. No. Um, here we go. Exodus thirty-two. Yeah. Yeah, that's the golden calf. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think of the golden, the dust? What does that represent? Think about like things not lasting. Hmm. Just gonna look up something here really quick in real time. But they you drank guys talk it. Amongst, I, I forgot talk, they drank talk it. Talk amongst you. So yeah, yeah. That's like the shiniest poops like... ever. <laughs> <laughs> or, or pee? I don't know. It's an expensive pee. Yeah. <clears throat> also, heavy metal poisoning, maybe. Yeah, totally. Yeah, could be. Totally. Yeah. So that's something supernatural there some kind of supernatural thing right maybe yeah it's the it's i think god's point in making them grind it up and drink it is that they created it mm -hmm. it's it's not going to last very long and that's two will turn to dust before before mm -hmm. i'm done and so right drink up yeah, I mean, enjoy did it, it while it lasts. Yeah. yeah, enjoy it while it lasts. You're there just going to drink all gold. of your wealth. Yeah, mm -hmm. that just turned to poop. Right. <laughs> okay, let's go back to let's go back to our uh, water metaphor now. So we do just briefly have uh, a water metaphor that I think water represents. Uh, something besides evil in the depth of the sea, but we also have living water. Mm -hmm. So there is a double metaphor of water in scripture. The sea is a certain metaphor. 
but then the water that's pulled from a well or the life that's given to us with water, uh, it, it definitely in this passage of scripture, three days without water, you know, I, I don't know if you've been following along three, seven, 40 multiples of, it just seems a little ironic that coincidental. Yeah. Coincidental that they went three days without water, but this is, uh, this is to me, uh, God is the healer. God heals with water. So there's a healing mm-hmm. idea. There's like, there is a healing idea to water. Um, drink a gallon of water a day for a month and you'll probably lose a little weight. Right. But, uh, but the Lord is their healer that he heals with, with water. Okay. Any other thoughts on those metaphors before we jump forward? Can I just say a thought on food? Oh yeah, please. Well, there's a reason that we have breakfast at resonate, right? Why? Well, it's communion, but Mm -hmm. food brings us together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that is something that I want to bring up about manna too, because they went out and they picked it up. It came from God. They picked it up and they ate it. And there's something very connecting and communal about that activity. Cause they were probably sitting around maybe on the, the ground and hanging out and eating some flatbread, some corn flakes that tasted like honey or whatever. And then uh, it's also an intimate relationship with God that you're actually ingesting mm-hmm. something. And that's where the word of God becomes like food that we ingest. So the mm-hmm. scroll in Revelation is eaten, that we see the intimacy with God, that we actually take in the word of God. Uh, in our Christian life. So the bread then turns into the bread of life, which turns into the bread of the word and we eat it. Communal though, communally, and also, also intimately too. That's why I think that the corporate reading of scripture and also communal activity around scripture is really important. Yep. Okay. We ready to move yeah. on? Okay. Sheree is ready to move on. She's jumping. I have, yeah. I have one. I have one more thing. I'm going to one add. more thing. Okay. But I couldn't, I couldn't find a space for it because we started talking about eating children. So no, oh, okay. I don't know. Um, Derailed. Aaron staff is an almond branch. Mm-hmm. Oh, so this entire, the entire narrative of God's power is, is through, an almond branch that mm-hmm. would have been blooming and fruiting and mm-hmm. throwing some almonds. Here's a good one. How about that oil? Go for so it. You, oh, I love the oil in scripture. That's food. The sense it's food. Oil is a sense of, I mean, we're not going to, well, some people drink, I, I drink MCT oil. So that's straight oil. You Drink pour all olive sure. oil over your yeah. salads or put that in your pan to fry things. So you had two types of oil in the, in the scripture, you had a refined oil and then you had a commoner's oil and the refined oil would have been one that probably like your extra virgin olive oil, if you could think of it that way. And this was the oil that they talked about. That was like, you know, the Pharisees would bring this to the sacrifice and then God would just go, why are you bringing this? You know, this is, you know, you think it, you think it's your best, but it's cheap. Um, But the commoner oil, the one that the people would have just burned in their lamps or they would have cooked with, or they would have done their rituals with was Christos oil. And Christos oil is the commoner's oil. Christos, of course, is where Crisco would come from, but that Latin word or the 
the Greek. ancient word of Greek word of, I guess, Crisco would be Latin ish. And then Christos would have been the Greek word for Christ. So looking at the oil, the healing, the burning, the salvation of oil, oil is salvation. It's anointing, it's consecration, it's holiness, it's all of that. So Christos oil would have been the commoner's person's oil. And when that oil was brought, that is the one that is accepted and saved. So the commoner Jesus Christ would have been for all common people, would have been it for everybody, but not the religious. He didn't come for the religious. He came for those that actually needed healing. And so that's what the oil of Christos versus a finer type oil. All right. So we made it. I knew that was going to take a while because I love food and I love the metaphor of food. Let's go through the rest of our scripture here that we have. So we have war. Uh, war is introduced. And this is the place where we say, okay, I can see where this section of scripture, 15, 16, 17, really, all the way to 19, 16, 17, 18, and 19, rather. This is where we see multiple traditions coming together. Okay. And there's some problems, like the imagery of like war, you have weapons. So where did the Israelites get the weapons? Manna. <laughs> <laughs> guns fell out of the sky too. Here's some cornflakes yeah. and shotguns. I mean, what what is there are two theories. Yep. Go for it. The first is that when the Egyptian armies water uh, uh, bodies came to shore in the Sea of Reeds, they stripped them of their armor and weapons. Mm. Okay. Second which theory, is probably pretty not true um that's the more truer one <laughs> that's the one that they think is that's how they that's how people right? explain how right. weapons other than that there's there's just a, this didn't happen yeah okay well, that's a problem because where did they get their weapons? Nobody really knows. They just appear. I mean, honestly, where did Joseph come from or uh, Joshua come from? This guy. <laughs> he just pops <laughs> in and says hello. Right. He just pops in and says hello. So obviously there's a reason why like the Amalekites are thought of as the enemy. Mm-hmm. Right, there are reasons why yeah. the Israelites have weapons. There's reasons why Joshua just appears. So ex explicate that a little bit for me, you guys. Like, try to pull that apart and explain to our listeners. Go for it, Shreya. I've been talking a lot, so you can tell you take sure. take the front on this one. Um, it points to a later writing date again. Um, so the Amalekites would have been um, enemies of Israel, like back during the times of, or I guess forward during the times of um, King Saul and King David. Um, and so it's convenient to make your enemy your enemy and write them back into mm -hmm. the text. Um, or make them bigger than they actually maybe were. Yeah, and then to show that, hey, way back then we defeated them, so we're going to defeat them again now, too. Right, right. Well, you have, I mean, honestly, you have like the inclusion of priests, right? You have, you have things that, uh, things that are just not, I mean, there's explanations to them. Like you can explain them away, but they're just dropped in there really with, like you said, you know, different traditions or different reasons mm -hmm. because the, the story was compiled like an exile. Well, Jake, why don't you, why don't you talk a little bit? Cause I, I really enjoyed 
our car ride and the discussion about if this story is mythicized history, okay, let's put it together for people. Let's just kind of wrap that package up and put a bow on it. Why or how did the Israelites get to Canaan? Why would they have written this story about themselves? And where did the Ark of the Covenant come from then? Because we're about ready to have an Ark of the Covenant. Um, so and that's the foreshadowing of the temple and the, the tabernacle and the temple. So where did that box come from? I want to know. Tell me, because I love that theory and I think it's actually, it's actually a good one. Um, Unlike mine. The theory is great, though. That's great. <laughs> mine, mine is much less um, substantiated. And it's okay. Proven. Um, I haven't even Googled it yet. So it may be somebody else's. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> there's some problems with Joshua's text when we, if I don't, we're not getting into it, but no. uh, with the conquest of Canaan in specific, that just as we said, there's no archaeological evidence that that Israelites or the Hebrew people were in were in Egypt. There is no archaeological evidence of a conquest of Canaan, especially uh, digs, not finding any weapons, not finding uh, things that substantiate siege or anything of the sorts. Walls weren't really a thing in the time period that were that they're writing at as well, that like the, the walls of Jericho, um, it doesn't all add up. And so we can, we can go into a later date. Uh, we have to stop and, and think what's, what's really happening here. And I think the best guess from a very high text criticism Mm -hmm. And this can be refuted and debated is that Abraham left Mesopotamia, the land of Ur, the land of the East, it was called, came and settled in the land of Canaan, had some issues of drought. So they, his descendants were consistently going down to Egypt. Uh, Jacob's son sells off their youngest brother, Joseph, into slavery through the Amicalites. I wanted to say it was the Midianites. Maybe Midianites. I have to look it up. Okay. It's important, but not important to the conclusion. So then you have Joseph down in Egypt. There's a great famine again. In Canaan, which does happen, and so it's mm -hmm. not uncommon, implausible, right? Yeah. Especially when you're a nomadic people group, you wouldn't have storehouses of food as a substantiated mm -hmm. people group like the Egyptians are a are a situated. And so Joseph goes down into Egypt, establishes himself through, I think, obviously God's provision i think that's a very miraculous thing that we can hook into became a leader in egypt and the one thing that joseph commands is that his bones are taken back into the land of canaan and so my best guess on what the ark of the covenant is dun 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 here we go drum roll is joseph's sarcophagus with cherub not cherubim, but cherub, which were Egyptian angels on top and a seat of offering or sacrifice for the afterlife. And so when the Israel people went back down to get Joseph's bones and brought them back up in the land of Canaan, then you establish the Ark of the Covenant. So Sharia, was he correct on all the details there? Was there something that 
The details were good. Um, I looked okay. up who who uh, Joseph was sold into slavery to. The CEB just says the Ishmaelites. Okay. <laughs> um, the general so term. Why do the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant? Why do they want the bones? It was the symbol of God's power. Okay. And, and honestly, they probably believed in God as well, right? Mm-hmm. It just what order or position was God placed in, in their hierarchy right. of, of gods. And the Philistines were actually, those are Greeks, and those would not mm-hmm. have been around for a, quite a while. So you have to question mm-hmm. that story a little bit as well. Yeah. Into who they actually were. I mean, I really like that theory because, and it's just a theory. It's a hypothesis. It's not, it's not something you can, you can substantiate. If we're going to say Exodus is mythicized history, then there has to be something happening around the it's history. It's historical nuggets in it that make it right. history. Mm-hmm. Right. So if Joseph is rising to power in Egypt, and he becomes the person that the Bible says he became, which I do believe that that's true, then he would have been adorned with some kind of tomb, some kind of sarcophagus, like all Egyptians were put in. And so when his bones, when he died, there would have been some kind of probably funeral procession, some kind of celebration as he's descending into the underworld of, of life that uh, that's their heaven, that they would have tombed him in, in some kind of, of box, what some people would term a large bone box in a sense. And so that idea maybe possibly becomes that first presence of of god as a reminder that god is salvation that god is more powerful than any other god and joseph then becomes that first messianic picture Moses is a messianic picture. I would say that Joseph Mm -hmm. feeding, giving food in famine, salvation. That's Mm -hmm. where food, food becomes the greater metaphor of life and salvation and literally eternity because they would have buried bodies with food. So anyway, I think the tie around to Jake's uh, hypothesis is then food joseph would have been that first or one of the messianic images that messiah would have birthed out of that idea of messiah i, that I, mean, God I think is gonna i think you're i think you're right on that mm-hmm. it might the first what you're right on and it was the first sold into slavery risen to prominence yeah. through humility mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's what makes that hypothesis to me when you said that to me on that car ride i was like okay and then i was thinking about it i'm like okay that makes that makes actually more sense than than most things that i've read and heard about joseph is that is that he is like rising in kingdom and the picture of passing out food to the starving those that are dying the bread of life right that's the messianic image all right that's exodus 15 through 19 all right so we are now in overtime and overtime for us has been a series of topics that honestly really get controversial sometimes and, and that wasn't what i just said you know i think i think that i don't think that that's really controversial jake i mean 
I think it actually fills in some spots that need to be filled in for those that believe in the Exodus story being mythicized history. Nobody really explains well. Then why did they even write the story? <laughs> you know, what's the purpose? Like make them out to be shameful slaves that are redeemed by God. But why? Why not tell a different story? Um or why not give a historical account of where they were? Was that just too boring to just sit around in Canaan and hang out and not have much to do or what? I think that they were in turmoil. I think they were in exile. I think they were in oppression. And the redemptive story of Exodus becomes that narrative that they needed to survive. And we all need to survive. We all need Exodus to survive, I think, spiritually and, and physically too. All right, let's close with that. Good? Great. Okay. Okay, thank you so much. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us. If you want to re-listen to this, it will be on our Facebook and YouTube channels, um, or you can re-listen at 10 o'clock on Sunday. Have a good uh, rest of your night. Good night, everybody. Good night.